You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of eastern Iowa and northwestern Illinois. I'm your host, Robin Johnson, and believe it or not, we're just about three months away this weekend from the Iowa caucus. And uh, of course, the uh, the focus is on the Republican side. And um, it's, it's a very interesting race, a lot going on. Candidates are crisscrossing across the state, uh, a lot of national and international news affecting this. And so here to sort it out at the three-month mark, uh, three months to go, uh, nobody better really than David Kochel, who's a veteran Republican consultant and operative in the state. <clears throat> He's worked for candidates uh, from the top of the ticket, uh, people like Mitt Romney, Jeb Bush, down to uh, uh, people like Governor Kim Reynolds, U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, and uh Members of Congress, Zach Nunn, uh, uh, Ashley Henson, and many others, I'm sure. Um, he also hosts his own podcast, which is called Highball Politics. And uh, very very pleased to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on, Dave. Thanks for having me, Robin. Looking forward to this. Yeah, I think it'll be fun and enlightening for our listeners. I mean, it's, it's really an unprecedented year. Again, <laughs> the last three cycles have been... Uh, Pretty, pretty interesting. But uh, how do you weigh this? I mean, you look at the polls and you think, well, Trump's got this thing uh, pretty much sewed up, right? Or is it still fluid? It's still fluid if you're, if you care about the Iowa caucuses and if you kind of understand the the bigger picture and the process that's going on here. If you just look at the national polls, yeah, Trump's lead looks insurmountable. National polls usually don't mean very much. They'll mean a lot more once you have the first couple of contests because they'll set the direction of this primary. And with, what is it, 12 or 13 people still declared and active in the race, um, and one of them has 100% name ID, everybody knows how they feel about him, um, it's really uh, the, the caucus's job, I think, and the job of New Hampshire as well, is to try to sort this field out. Because if Donald Trump is running against five or six people going into Super Tuesday, yeah, he's the nominee. And then the national polls will will never really change. If you get this race down into something that is a little bit more manageable, maybe um, really only three or four viable candidates after Iowa, and maybe, uh, you know, the 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 thing I would be concerned about if I was if I was former President Trump is if this gets down to two people going into South Carolina, uh, you know, then then you never know what will happen because there are still in, in Iowa, this is true. And this is true in New Hampshire. You know, over 70 percent of voters are open to someone else. But when they're looking at a field that's as tangled up like this ball of yarn is, it's hard to sort out, you know, who's going to make the best choice to go against Trump. If you're someone who either doesn't like Trump or likes Trump fine, but is ready to turn the page, you're trying to figure out where to go. And that, that's what Iowa is all about. And so we're, and we see a lot of movement late in these campaigns anyway. Um, Iowa is pretty famous for that. So at, at the three month point, 
you know, I think Mike Huckabee was probably still at 4% and Rick Santorum was at about 6%. And they both go on to ultimately win or in Santorum's case, kind of sort of halfway win the caucuses. So lots of time left. I know it's a little different with Trump in the race uh, because he's so well known, but um, I don't think these candidates are out here crisscrossing Iowa and spending all this money just, uh, you know, because they're, you know, that because they like Iowa in January. So I think there's a reason for it. What's well, interesting, I did. Uh, I looked at uh, a couple of poll aggregators, RCP and then 538, and they both got Trump right at about 50% and DeSantis in the high teens. Uh, Haley's behind that a little bit. But again, as you said, this is still with multiple candidates in the race, uh, up to a dozen. But Trump seems locked in right around 50%, which you can read one of two ways. Uh, there's still ground to be made up by somebody if, if it consolidates or um, you know, he's just got a solid, uh, solid share um, block that just isn't going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, do you see any movement in that one way or the other? Do you feel like there's a sense that what voters could be pulled away, Republicans to another candidate? Yeah, I've seen quite a bit of movement, and I, I've done some work and seen some private polling lately that um, <laughs> indicates that there is some movement going on, kind of down at that in that race for a second. Nikki Haley had a pretty good first, a really good first debate and a pretty good second debate and moved up into second place in New Hampshire in a couple of the latest polls. I know Chris Christie's out there taking a bunch of vote share right now. Um, DeSantis has had a kind of an unfortunate trajectory for him, which has been kind of a steady glide path down from where he was, which was probably in the 30s in Iowa when he started this thing out. Um, that said, he's built a pretty muscular organization in Iowa, and he's got people running the Super PAC who won the last Iowa caucuses, helping Ted Cruz, and the blocking and tackling is really important, and it actually adds up quite a bit in Iowa where you have a, a really unpredictable electorate that um, it has to go out on a on a Monday night at 7 o'clock and might be a snowstorm, and so the better organized you are, the more precinct leaders you have, the more of the real blocking and tackling you've done, uh, you can really overperform some of this polling. A lot of the polling now just, it's kind of, it reflects preference. All these people who are kind of open to somebody else, they might move around, but they've definitely got their one, two, three uh, kind of favorites. And my, my guess is this race won't really lock in until December. And we'll start to see I think I think we'll start to separate the wheat from the chaff there. And, and you know, the old saying used to be way, way back used to be there are three tickets out of Iowa. Um, and that's probably true. But in the case of Trump, obviously, he's got the probably the first ticket. My guess is it's really hard to actually beat him uh, here um, unless it was already a head to head race. If it was a head to head race, I think Trump would be really vulnerable here. So what we're trying to do in Iowa is get it winnowed down. So that when they go into New Hampshire, you really kind of sort out the rest of it. If you go in and let's say, for example, Nikki Haley has a great performance in New Hampshire and she goes into South Carolina alone against Donald Trump as the former governor of South Carolina. Who knows what could happen? We don't know also in March what these trials are going to be looking like and, and all of the information is going to be coming at us. Uh, then obviously at this time, the you know Republican voters, um, are, they, they aren't concerned about those uh, those trials. But um, that's because it's in part because it's early. We don't know everything that we're going to know. And, um, you know, races are, campaigns like this are dynamic things. And mm -hmm. so we, we can't, it, it's hard to predict. If I had to say right now, I'd say Trump is in a, in a pretty secure position in Iowa, but I think it'll be a much closer here 
than the national polls are, and that'll have an impact. So that's that's what we're looking to see on January 15th. Well, let's talk about some of the candidates. I mean, again, you've got extensive experience, as I laid out before, at the presidential level. Just about every kind of race in Iowa you've had involvement in, successful involvement, not just involvement, but winning. Um, what right. do you, the DeSantis campaign, um, That there's always one every cycle, it seems like, that looks on paper to be pretty good and then doesn't really match the expectations. I'm thinking of John Glenn on the Democratic side back in 84. Mm -hmm. Um but this, and, and maybe that's not a fair comparison because you said that they're they're putting together a pretty good ground game, which is obviously very important. But what uh, what's your sense of him? He looked like he was ready, poised to really take Trump on one on one yeah. uh, back last spring, summer, and it really he's actually dropped in the polls. What's what's going on there? Well, uh, first of all, I think his opportunity was uh, he had a huge win in Florida. He came off of that uh, with incredibly. Uh, I mean, he he was the talk of the nation because, you know, we were supposed to have this huge red wave, and the only places it really happened was Iowa, Florida, and maybe Ohio. Um, and he governed very similarly to Kim Reynolds. A lot of national media attacks on how he handled COVID. Um, so, yeah, he came in looking pretty good. Uh, you know, here's the thing. You get in these races and, you know, what What did David Axelrod call it? It's an MRI of the soul. Um, you know, I, I think he might have waited a little bit long, which is 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 one criticism that I would have. Is he, he probably needed to get into the race a little sooner. Uh, I think he thought that um, he was going to stay in that really strong second position for a while. Well, then Donald Trump starts attacking him and he attacks him pretty effectively uh, and I don't think the DeSantis campaign knew how to beat that back and fight back. He also didn't do a lot of media early on. They thought they didn't need to. Um, and so the result of kind of the, you know, Trump piling on all the time, them waiting to get in, them not really taking advantage of the earned media opportunities, which Trump is the the far and away world-class leader in knowing how to manipulate the, the, the earned media. If you saw him on, you know, the, the Caitlin Collins interview on CNN, even in a hostile environment, he tends to come out on top. And for whatever reason, the DeSantis team felt they didn't have to go that route. And the result is he's, he slipped. Um, sometimes you get a second look. John McCain is a great example whose campaign was literally in, you know, in fumes, uh, you know, in the summer of, uh, of 20, 07 and and he was able to come back and of course he was a very talented politician who was already well liked in in new hampshire so he had that advantage and he used that to springboard to the rest of the nomination so we can't see the future but i would say if if i had to diagnose what has gone wrong with desantis since he has lost altitude that's kind of where i'd put it number one withering trump attacks number two maybe waited a little too long because it it felt like it was his moment coming out of that election and starting the the new session in Florida where he was going to get all this stuff done and then and then just not really seeming to be present on the campaign trail until into May and June. So that would be my that'd be my diagnosis for why he's where he is. Well, if there's one candidate that I think the national media anyway is kind of anointing as one up and coming is Nikki Haley, the governor of South Carolina based on her debate performances. Yeah. Um 
And from what I understand, and you would know better than I, but from what I understand, she's upping her game quite a bit in Iowa and making a big, big effort uh, there, try to take advantage of this. Um, Do you think she's got a shot? Is there a lane there uh, to maybe move past DeSantis as the main challenger to Trump? Or will and will Trump start going after her the way he did uh, DeSantis? Well, he already started. If you saw last week, uh, he called her bird brain in a in a couple of social media posts, and then his campaign staff staff dropped off a bird cage at her hotel room in Des Moines, which I thought, by the way, was kind of petty and a little creepy, to be honest. Um, but I agree with the characterization that she's been the one on the upswing. It was based primarily on the debate performances. The other thing that she's done and her team has done. And we'll see whether this was a, a risk that that pays off or, or doesn't pay off, is they just didn't spend money. Um, as you said, they're just starting to ramp up in Iowa now. They they didn't really hire their first staffer until a couple of months ago in Iowa. Maybe it's three months now. And now they're building out. Well, uh, you know, if you look at the history of the Iowa caucuses, momentum matters more than mechanics, I think. So uh, you look at, Mike Huckabee and Rick Santorum, like I said, they were low in the polls, but they also really didn't have big teams on the ground. They had a few people um, and they ended up winning the caucuses because they had the momentum at the end, people, and particularly the evangelical community, which tends to kind of move as a unit. Now, she she may not have the the success there and DeSantis has worked that crowd hard, but I do think that that who's moving at the end gets noticed because people are now starting to really pay attention. If she's moving up nationally, if she's moving up in New Hampshire, and I've got I've seen polling that has her pulling pretty close to DeSantis in Iowa, um, I'd rather have trend and trajectory in my favor than uh, a big staff and a big team. The other thing she's done is she's got $9 million in spendable primary cash that she has held back. Um, and that's a pretty good chunk of money. That's certainly enough to get her through New Hampshire. And if she's successful enough in Iowa and New Hampshire to kind of get that next ticket to the next level, let's say we're in the quarterfinals now, she gets to the semifinals, waiting to take on Trump in the finals, the money will be there. If she were able to finish second in New Hampshire, the money I think would be there to get her as far as she needed to go. And then you just see whether or not they battle it out in South Carolina and on to Super Tuesday where so many of the delegates are available. So if if I'm if I'm buying stock right now, uh, I I would probably hedge a little bit with DeSantis because because he does have a ton of people on the ground. They've done a good job, and he has consistently stayed in second position here in Iowa, even though he slipped some. But I but I'd probably if I if I were buying another stock, I I would be buying hers. Um, she looks a lot like our successful politicians. You know, Kim Reynolds, Joni Ernst, Ashley Henson, Marionette Miller-Meeks, strong conservative women who are articulate, um, who are personable, and who know how to campaign, um, do well in Iowa. Now, it wasn't the case before, you know, Joni came along um, because we hadn't had anybody sent to the federal delegation who was a woman, and we hadn't elected a female governor. We'd had several female uh, lieutenant governors. So I I think... I think Iowa voters, you know, like they like Kim Reynolds, they like Joni Ernst, and they see Nikki Haley, and I think they can kind of relate to that style of politics, tough, but also uh, has a softer side, um, is, you know, just as a good articulate campaigner. And obviously, when she was 
standing up there on the debate stage with all those men, she stands out and she performed at a very high level. So um, there, I think there's a good reason why she's been the one to watch recently. And it has borne out. She's, she's brought in more money. She's gotten more endorsements. And, you know, I, I, if, I think if I was with her campaign, I'd like where I was right now. And you want to have a really good next couple of months. If you can get into that second position in Iowa and in New Hampshire, then you've you've really got a story to tell going on through Nevada to South Carolina, where she's obviously very well known. You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and I'm, I'm really uh, glad that we've got some expert inside analysis that uh, we're, my host is treating our listeners to. He's David Cottrell. As I said at the beginning, he's uh, advised campaigns from the very top at the presidential level, from Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney down to U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, Governor Kim Reynolds, uh, Congress members of Congress like Ashley Hinson and Zach Nunn, um, and uh, a lot of others. But uh, uh, he's kind of giving you some uh, inside dope here on, on the Iowa caucuses. We're three months away. Still what a ways out, but it's it's starting to take shape a little bit. Um I'm curious, I, I want to get back to some of the candidates in a minute, but it seems like Governor Reynolds, who I would think her endorsement could be fairly important, seems like she's she's gotten close to uh, Ron DeSantis. And you mentioned earlier that um, um, they both have had successful records as governor. A lot of similarities there. Do you think she'll pull the trigger on that and risk the wrath of the Trump supporters in Iowa? Well, I don't have any... Uh direct knowledge of what she plans to do. I know that she has enjoyed her time campaigning with him. I think she, as I mentioned before, yeah, they, they have bonded over going through some of the same trials as a conservative governor going through COVID with the national media attacking them. They've got very similar records and to see them on the campaign trail. Yeah. Yeah. You can just tell she really likes him. I think that's also true for some of the other candidates as well, though. She's been, um, very welcoming to everybody because that's her job. Her job is to make sure that Iowa has the welcome mat out for all these candidates, for all the reporters that come through town, for all the political tourists coming to the state fair and and elsewhere. Um, you know, she's wanted to put on uh, put Iowa's very best foot forward for the caucuses, and I think she's done that job admirably. Um, you know that I think Donald Trump took a couple of shots at her that were unnecessary and unwise. Um, she is very popular. Um, you know, he's, he's, uh, I, I, it's kind of hard to put my finger on, on why he would do that. I think he expects everybody in the world just to endorse him because he's been president before, but look, you know, we're having a contest here and, and we want to make it fair and we want to make everybody feel welcome. Uh, I don't know what she's going to do. I, um, I know that her she she has taken the job seriously to try to make sure everybody feels like they're welcome coming here. And that's why she's hosted everyone, invited everyone. Donald Trump hasn't taken her up on it. Um, and that's his decision. It hasn't been hers. Uh, so I, I just think she's I think she's acquitted herself very well in this cycle. I, I do agree that she really likes Ron DeSantis. Beyond that, I don't really know what she's gonna do. And I and I don't, you know, look, um, endorsements matter they matter a lot in the national narrative because they can equal you know sort of they give you momentum stories that you need but i think most people are going to make up their own minds um i'm sure that anybody would love to have her endorsement i'm not sure that it would be 
completely decisive. Um, but I, I, you know, I think we just got to stay tuned and wait and see what she wants to do. Some of the other candidates I, I've noticed in, in watching TV, uh, you know, put on a football game, the local news out here in the Quad City market. Uh, Tim uh, Tim Scott, the uh, senator from uh, um, South Carolina, is on a lot, uh, and and so is the North North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. At least he was. He hasn't been on as much. Uh, I've seen DeSant quite a few DeSantis ads too, but uh, it doesn't appear that those for those two anyway that the ads have really cut through yet. Um, what what's the timeline here when can campaigns start saying, okay, you know, uh, we've got to get out. We've already had some uh, a couple campaigns uh, close up, close shop. Will Hurd just did this week earlier. Um, what what's your thoughts on that? I know it's a tough decision for him. Yeah. Tough decision to get out of a race that you you put a lot of time and energy into. If if I had to, so my experience is that you get out of the race when you run out of money. Tim Scott came in with a lot of money. He had twenty three million dollars in his federal account left over from his Senate races. He's got Larry Ellison, who's a huge software you know billionaire who's funding his super PAC. I don't know how much he's put in, but. As long as you still have money, I think most of these candidates think they have hope. My sense of his campaign, though, is that he had a great opening act uh, because he tells a great story. His life story is is I mean it's it's very inspiring. Um, he is the the hopeful aspirational candidate. I'm not sure he had a second act after his introduction, his biography, um, and I think they've struggled to find. Uh, a way through that. I thought also the the debate performance at the last debate, you know, getting getting on Nikki Haley for drapes in the in the U.S. ambassador U.N. ambassador's residence after the New York Times basically fact checked that and said, well, that was Obama's spending. Was, you know, I don't know why he would he would do that. So he's I think he's had a couple of little missteps like that, and also, but the the larger thing is I'm not sure what the maybe we might not be in an environment where a hope hope and aspiration candidate can succeed because we might be living in in a time of grievance politics where we've got a you know we've got a lot of uh you know there's a lot of voter anger out there and maybe they want someone to channel that anger so that that could be an issue too in in the remaining time i wanted to i mean there's other candidates running and i we can we can work them in but i mean obviously we had the the terrorist attack hamas terrorist attack in israel this week just horrible uh continuing to read the 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 stories coming out of there some excellent journalism coming out on what exactly happened and it's it's just it's it's unbelievable yeah is this going to have any impact and i i hate i don't mean to be disrespectful but will this have an impact on the uh the campaign uh for president especially in iowa as far as you know the uh leadership uh experience factor in dealing you know will this favor trump to a degree of, of having some experience dealing on the world stage mm-hmm. well these are events like this are really a test of of your character and leadership and can you clear the bar uh in your comments in your approach that help people understand that you are a serious person and that you would be you are big enough uh, to handle a crisis like this. So there's a bar you have to clear. Um, DeSantis uh, came out pretty strong, gave a, gave a, uh, you know, I, I watched his response on Morning Joe the other morning, and I thought he cleared that bar. 
Um, I've watched Nikki Haley, who has obviously a lot of foreign policy experience based on her time as UN ambassador. I thought she cleared that bar. I think Tim Scott made a huge mistake saying there was blood on Joe Biden's hands. After you saw Joe Biden's speech the other day, uh, where he 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 stood four square with Israel. He said all the right things, no daylight, all of that. I think that was a mistake. Um, I think Vivek Ramaswamy, who we haven't talked about yet, going on Tucker Carlson and, and basically saying, well, you know, that's bad, but what's worse is uh, fentanyl coming across the border and it's killing even more people than that. You know what? No, that's that is not an appropriate conversation to have. This is one of our strongest allies. And if you can't speak to it without trying to say, well, but this other thing is worse, I don't think you've met the voter test. Well, maybe the problem is going on Tucker Carlson and trying to, you know, trying to suck up to those those voters who are, who are completely in a different place when it comes to things like this. Um, you've, there's, there is an adult test that has to be passed here. And I think we've seen a couple people pass it. Uh, I don't think Vivek was one of them. Um, back to your first point on Donald Trump, though, the fact that he was president um, and, you know, he had a good relationship with um, Netanyahu. Uh, he moved to the embassy. People who want you to be um, a hawk on these issues and, and stand strong for Israel, he's cleared that bar, too. So I think those three are kind of the ones that, to me, have have really shown. I wanted to ask too about the 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 ouster of Kevin McCarthy as uh, Speaker in the House, and the problems uh, that the uh, Republican Caucus has had in selecting a new leader. Uh, does that concern you about uh, the, the the messaging that the Democrats, no doubt, will use uh, that the Republicans can't run things, and could that possibly jeopardize seats like uh, Congresswoman Miller Meeks and Henson here in Iowa? I don't think it's going to have a a big impact on their race. First of all, it'll be, you know, it'll be resolved here at some point over a year before the election. I think Repub the Republican Party for all of its um, struggles right now and looking like it can't run a two-car parade, um, you know, it still leads by 18 points on the economy. Joe Biden is still sitting at 40% approval rating and mid-50s uh, disapproval. So I don't think the party's in a bad position. I do think they got to get their act cleaned up in Congress. And it's just a handful of of nihilistic members of the House who must insist on every single one of their demands being met. And uh, it, it's impossible to please everybody all the time. At a certain point, that fever will have to break because if we can't look like we can manage just the House of Representatives, why are voters going to give us a chance to to manage the affairs of the entire country? So I do think the fever will break. Uh, they'll they may take down, you know, Scalise and Jordan, and who knows? Someone might have to just emer emerge that hasn't really been running for it. Um, but at a certain point, people are going to have to relent and allow this house to get organized. I don't think it's going to blow back on people like Ashley Hinson, who's doing the job, Miller Meeks, who's doing the job. I mean, I, I don't think they get any blame for this. If their name was Matt Gates, yeah, put the blame there. Um, but neither one of them have been part of the, the, the nihilistic caucus. Time for one last question, 30 seconds. Uh, I get Jeff Kaufman, the Iowa Republican state chairman on uh, a while back. And he, mm -hmm. he said the Iowa Republican party is a blue collar working class party. Yeah. Um, 
a lot of people credit Donald Trump with that. My theory has always been that started really in the 2014 Senate race, which you were a part of with Joni Ernst. Yeah. What, what's your thoughts on that in 30 seconds? Absolutely right. Um, if you look at the precincts and the counties where he did well and switched from Obama to Trump, those were the same counties where Joni Ernst overperformed in a in a serious way in 2014, uh, even defeating who was then an incumbent congressman in the North East Iowa first district, um, th that's where those voters are. That's where a lot of those precincts and counties are. And she overperformed there. And it was a harbinger, I think, of the of the Trump voter. Uh, he maybe gets a lot of credit for it, but I think Joni Ernst uh, certainly showed the path. David Cottrell has been my guest today on Heartland Politics. He's a veteran Republican consultant and uh, more importantly, a diehard Cub fan. Uh, so <laughs> very pleased to have you on, Dave. Thanks, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Robin. Appreciate it. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.